We are in the middle of a series entitled, When Life Disappoints. And the big idea that we're wrestling with as we go through this series revolves around the question, how do I live and grow with disappointment? And in order to answer this question, we are looking at the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. And one of the, um, and one of the approaches that we have to this series is that there is unique insight and unique wisdom that we can gain in how we can live our lives to the full by looking at how Jesus died. And so uh, we started in uh, Matthew and Mark by looking at the cry that they have on Jesus' lips as he is on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we've spent the last two weeks and finishing a third week this week in the Gospel of John. Um, And then next week we'll be heading into the final three words in the Gospel according to Luke. So today we're still in John chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at a single Greek word, tetelestai. Uh, It's the last word that John records Jesus saying on the cross. And it's a word, and I was trying to figure out how to say this in a way that doesn't sound like hyperbole or exaggeration, but it's a word that has literally changed the course of human history. It's a word that expresses the very heart of the Christian message. It's a word that reveals and opens up the entire purpose of Jesus' ministry. It reveals the heart of God and the nature of love. And it's a word that continues to have the power to change our lives today. So the word that we're looking at today, again, single Greek word, tetelestai, and it means it is finished or it has been completed. And actually, in in the few verses that we're going to read, it actually shows up twice. You'll probably recognize it. Um, I'll call it out to you as we read it. So I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, to honor the reading of God's Word. That's our custom here at New Beginnings. We'll be reading from John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30. And I'll read for us. Later knowing that everything had now been finished to Telestai. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, It is finished to Telestai. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You may be seated. Father God, we invite your presence here. And I pray especially that you would help me to do this passage justice. Father God, um, in spite of all my limitations, would you speak a word this day um, from this amazing passage because of your incredible love for each one of us here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks back, uh, my wife was having a conversation with our youngest daughter. She's eight years old. Her name is Serena. And one of the things that I love about Serena is she will always tell you what is on her mind. (laughs) So we had just started here at New Beginnings 
our season of prayer and fasting heading into Easter. So we've been talking about, you know, what are some things that we might give up that we love in order to create space to encounter God and experience him in a new way in this season. And so my wife Mimi is having this conversation with Serena, and she asked Serena if Serena would want to do anything special in this season. And so Serena looks back at my wife and says, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to give up something that I like? It makes no sense. So Mimi answers the question, and she says, well, it's because of all that Jesus did for us on the cross. And Serena looks right back at her and says, Jesus didn't do anything on the cross. He just hung there. Now, Clearly, my wife and I are doing a great job with theological <laughs> education for our daughters. And I know we're mostly adults here, so some of us are cringing and thinking, can you ask that question? Is that allowed? <laughs> and one of the things I love about New Beginnings is that we're a church that takes seriously. We want to be a safe place where all questions are welcome, uh, no matter where we're at in our journey with God. And I want to give Serena a little bit of credit in this because in its own way, it's a very fair question. Because if you look at just the sequence of what Jesus did on the cross, you could look at it and say, well, Jesus said some words and then he died. And in fact, in the centuries before Jesus and in the centuries after Jesus, there were hundreds of thousands of people who hung on Roman crosses said a few words, and then died. So when you look at Jesus, what really makes him different? Now, there is something different that is going on in this passage, and it's actually one of the, the signals that calls that out is this word that Jesus speaks, the last word that John records, to Telestai, it is finished. Because this word is a word that would be totally unexpected from someone who is dying on the cross. It's a word that means, that signals completion and achievement. So it's a word that a master craftsman or an artist might have used to say, I have finished my masterpiece to Telestai. It is finished. It's a word actually that a servant might have used to say, I've received an assignment from my master, and I have completed my assignment well, successfully. It is done to Telestai. It is finished. It's a word that there's really no negative connotation for its use. So it's a cry of victory. It's a, there's something that is, um, that is deeply satisfying in this cry. It is finished. And so when this is the last word that is on Jesus' lips, it makes us ask the question, what has actually been fulfilled? Now, one of the things that we note from Serena's question, um, and it's true, if you're just looking at what occurred, it can be really hard to tell what's going on when all you see is a tragic circumstance. And that's true for our lives as well. When we are going through the mess, when we are facing disappointment, when our expectations are crushed, when we're facing pain or suffering, it's incredibly difficult when we are in that moment to have a sense for God doing something bigger in that time. And really, the only way that we can experience 
suffering and pain and disappointment with a sense of hope and trust is if we step back and take a broader context, a broader view. If we remember other times in our lives where we face disappointment and we experience God's faithfulness in the midst of life not turning out the way that we hoped. Or if we remember other times and other seasons in our lives where God encouraged us or made promise to us or we found a particular verse of scripture that was relevant and we can grab onto those things and bring them into the experience that we are going through so that we can have a bigger picture of what God might be doing. And so just as that's true for our lives, that's true for Jesus as well. And the remarkable thing as we see Jesus on the cross is that he had that picture because even as he was dying on the cross, he was able to say, this looks like failure, but it's actually finishing what God sent me to do. It is victory. It is the completion and the fullness of my mission. So when we ask, what did Jesus actually do on the cross? I want to avoid just giving a pat answer because it doesn't do justice to all the things that um, were, were a part of Jesus being able to know that he had finished the work that God sent him to do. So what I actually want to do as we try to answer this question is I want to look at three key passages from the Old Testament that are woven into the New Testament accounts of the crucifixion, that are woven into these accounts of Jesus's death. And these passages actually were instrumental in shaping Jesus's ministry, in shaping Jesus's own sense of his purpose and his calling. And so they're very likely passages that he was reflecting on as he was dying on the cross. And so they shape our understanding of what exactly Jesus finished when he said that word to Telestai. It has been completed. It is done. So the first passage that I want to look at is actually one that Pastor Herman referenced last week from Exodus 12, verses 21 to 23. And so this is all the way back when the people of Israel were, um, uh, were slaves in Egypt, and God is in the process of delivering them from slavery and bringing them out. And in these verses, Moses gives instructions to the people on the night where they celebrate the Passover for the very first time. And Moses tells the people on that night when God is going to deliver the people from under the hand of Pharaoh, from out of slavery, he tells them to slaughter the Passover lamb, a lamb that was whole and perfect without defect. And as they slaughter the lamb to take a bunch of hyssop, the plant, to dip it in the blood, and to wipe it on the doorposts and the door frames of their house so that when God passes over the people of Israel in Egypt, he will see the blood and the judgment that he strikes on the land will pass over them and fall on the Egyptians and the people of Israel will be spared God's judgment and be brought out of slavery into freedom. That's how God delivered his people. And this passage would almost certainly have been on Jesus' mind. The Gospels tell us that the crucifixion happened during the time of Passover. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. 
And from the very beginning of his ministry, there was an association between the Passover lamb and who Jesus was. In the Gospel of John, in the very first chapter, when John the Baptist encounters Jesus, he tells his disciples, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. And so this passage was one of the ways that Jesus understood his mission, why he was sent to this earth. The work of deliverance and salvation was one of the key elements of what Jesus meant when he was saying, it is finished. So there's a second passage that Jesus was very clearly holding on to when he died on the cross. And that passage is from a psalm, from Psalm 22. And some scholars have actually referred to Psalm 22 as the fifth gospel. It would be a great companion piece of scripture as we go through this uh, season leading up to Easter to reflect on in our prayer times, uh, just to read. It's not an extremely long psalm, um, but it offers an amazing context of what Jesus was doing when he was on the cross. Because even though it was written a thousand years before Jesus lived, written during the time of David, and even though it was written roughly 500 years before crucifixion was invented and implemented by the Persians and the Assyrians and then ultimately the Romans, it presents an amazingly accurate picture of Jesus' death and what Jesus' death meant. When we started this series, we saw that the cry that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark have Jesus saying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry is the first verse of Psalm 22. And as you read Psalm 22, it, you see it tracing the rest of what Jesus experienced on the cross with amazing precision. So let me just read a few verses so you get a sense of the parallels. Verse 1 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7 and 8 reads, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. That's what Matthew and Mark describe the people saying as Jesus hung on the cross. Verse 14 reads, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. This is literally what happened to Jesus as his arms and elbows and wrists would have dislocated from hanging on the cross. Verse 15 reads, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And we think of Jesus crying out, I thirst from the cross. Verse 18 reads, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, which is what is described in John chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, just a few verses before the passage we read today. Now, what's remarkable about Psalm 22, like the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, like how Jesus ends with saying, it is finished, is that Psalm 22 also ends in a note of triumph. The closing words of Psalm 22 include the following. In verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. 
And then the very ending of Psalm 22, verses 30 and 31. I think we can put this one up. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And in these words, he has done it, you hear an echo of what Jesus said, it is finished. And you get a sense that part of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is exactly from these words in Psalm 22. He has revealed who God is and allowed humanity from that point on in generations and generations to recognize the nature and the character of God and to enter into relationship with God because of that knowledge. There's a revelation of the fullness of who God is. And that's another element of what Jesus was thinking about when he said, it is finished. And then there's one final passage that I think would have been in Jesus' thoughts was a part of the shaping of his understanding of why he was sent to this earth, of what his ministry was going to be all about. And that's from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the books that Jesus cited most often in referencing his ministry. He actually began his public ministry by reading from the book of Isaiah. And he surely would have been familiar with the portion of Isaiah that describes a suffering servant of God that brings redemption to all of humanity. And so one of the ways, one of the additional passages of reflection as we think about what did Jesus mean when he said it is finished comes from Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what was finished? As we bring these passages together, as we think about how these passages shape Jesus' ministry, as, as we think about how Jesus immersed himself in the whole narrative of God's saving work that started um, in the entire scripture that he knew throughout the Old Testament and the ways that God was faithful to his people, the ways that God had delivered his people, the ways that God intervened to bring salvation, the ways that God was constantly working to reveal himself, the fullness of his love to people, and the way that that's represented in these three passages that were so influential in Jesus' ministry. We can see how these were the passages that shaped how Jesus understood his own purpose. And Jesus used this, this language in his own words in the, book, in the Gospel of John to describe what the mission of his life was. It's in the context of these passages that we hear John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was a core part of Jesus' mission, to bring salvation to this world. And then in John 14, 7 to 9, we have these amazing verses where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says to them, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Amazing. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And one of his disciples, Philip, said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So the second part of Jesus' mission was to reveal the fullness of who God is, the nature of God, the heart of God, the way that God is love. And so as we take these two things, one of the insights that we get from them that we have to hold on to as we think about what Jesus finished on the cross, is that these two things that Jesus accomplished are actually not separate and independent, but they're actually fused together and united into one mission and purpose that Jesus accomplished as he said, it is finished. Because Jesus revealed the fullness of who God is, the nature of God, the heart of God that is love. And in revealing God's love, he reveals that God's love compelled him to pour out grace and mercy, to pour out healing and forgiveness, to, to do whatever it took to save us and to bring us into relationship with him, even if it costs God everything. That's what Jesus is saying. I have fulfilled that mission to show you God like that and to show you that because of his love, he has finished the work of salvation. He has saved you with an everlasting love. And when we see that this is what Jesus means when he says it is finished, this is what Jesus is talking about when he said, I have done everything that God has asked me to do, and I have finished it as I die on the cross. That no sacrifice was too great to do this work of bringing you into relationship with God. It's designed to melt our heart, to change our lives. It's designed so that we're not the same after that that we were before realizing that. And so in the time that we have left, I want to just briefly take note of three ways that this finished mission of Jesus changes our lives. So, the first thing that I want to highlight is when Jesus says it is finished, it changes the way that we love. It changes the way that we love and understand love. So let me start by explaining this one with a little story. Um, so I started with a story about Serena. This one is actually about one of her classmates' families. Uh, we recently had a conversation with one of the fathers of Serena's classmates, and he shared with us that he recently discovered that his son had learned how to unlock his phone. And the way that he discovered that his son had learned how to unlock his phone is that one morning, 
his son took his phone, unlocked it, and started sending text messages to random contacts on his contact list. And the text message that he sent was, I love you, heart emoji. (laughs) So I want you to imagine what it was like for this man to discover this text message has been sent to all of my work colleagues. (laughs) This text message has been sent to my neighbors. This message has been sent to my very tough old school boss. So this very embarrassed father had to give some explanations, had to talk to HR to explain what had happened, (laughs) Uh, probably had a kind of interesting conversation with his boss. One of the things that Mimi said when she found this out was, you know, as awkward as it is that this text message went to your kind of old school tough guy boss, maybe it's better that your boss was not a woman because... What if she had responded to that text message? And that's like the start of a bad Hollywood movie, right? So, but the point is that on some level in our everyday lives, we experience a lot of superficial love that doesn't go much deeper than a text message and an emoji. I love you. It's friendly. It might make us smile. But... Text messages and emojis tend to do very little to change our lives. And on some level, I think there are times where we kind of treat the message of God's love like he's texting us an emoji. I love you. I just love everyone. And um, it's great. Uh, You know, I want everyone to be with me. Just go about your business and know that I'll, I'll text you heart emojis every now and then and you can just move through life like that. Now, the problem is that kind of love doesn't do us any good. It doesn't change our lives or transform our lives in any way. It doesn't rock us to the core of our being because that kind of love doesn't cost God anything. When we receive a text, emoji, you know, a text and an emoji from someone, if there's nothing else behind it, we're probably just going to brush it off or say, oh, you know, that's nice. But God's love isn't a text and an emoji kind of love. When Jesus said, it is finished, as he died on the cross, he demonstrated that God's love and real love is something that costs to the very core of God's being. And the reality is, real love has to be costly, especially when God is loving us in order to save us. When we think about the pain and brokenness of our world, when we think about all the ways that our world is shattered and the harm that people suffer, the pain that people suffer, when we look at cost, when we look at brokenness in this world, there's always a cost that has to be paid behind it. I mean, we actually know that just from our everyday lives. Uh, This summer, my wife and I, uh, we came home to to discover that our neighbor had done some plumbing work. And because of that plumbing work, there was an accident and we had about four inches of standing water all in our bathroom and bedroom. There is no way to restore that and make that whole unless someone pays a cost. 
Either we're eating the cost and paying for it, or our neighbor is eating the cost and paying for it, or our insurance is paying for it, but it doesn't get restored without somebody paying the cost. And we can think about that dynamic in our lives as we interact with real people. You know, in our relationships, we can do our best when we experience hurt or cause hurt. We can say that we're sorry and try to make amends. But we all know that there are some hurts and some wounds, some lies and some betrayals, some forms of abuse that simply cannot be repaid. If we caused it in someone else's life, there's no way that we can fully fix it. And if someone caused it in our lives, there's no way that they can truly make us whole. And that's the power of what Jesus did on the cross. God looked over all of humanity across all time, and he saw the weight of sin and brokenness. He knew that there were debts that were owed, debts that we owe to each other, debts that we owe to God when we were unable to honor him, when we fell short of honoring him in the way that we should, and that these debts could never be repaid. And so he bore the cost on himself. That's the love of God that we see as Jesus died. And that's what real love looks like. And because we see God's love in this picture, that God is willing to pay any price to bring people back into relationship with him and to save them, then we know that God's love will never fail us. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to write in Romans 8, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Jesus did when he said, it is finished. So it changes the way that we love and view love because when we receive this kind of love from God, we're able to reflect this love to other people. When we have received a love that has been costly, that has involved sacrifice, when we know that we have been cared for far beyond what we deserve, that a price has been paid for us, then we are able to engage in love with others where we are willing to sacrifice, where we are willing to pay the price, where we are willing to hang in there even though it is painful and broken. Because it is when we love in that way that we become agents of healing and transformation, and redemption in the lives of people around us. When we love without cost and sacrifice, it doesn't do anything for anyone. If God loved us that way, we would still be lost. But when Jesus says, it is finished, he demonstrates what real love is, and he invites us to love others in the same way. So the second thing that changes when Jesus says it is finished is it changes the way that we live 
the way that we view life and engage with life. When Jesus says it is finished, he declares that God's love is unconditional. It doesn't come with strings attached. We don't earn it by our efforts or by trying harder to be good. We can't lose it with our, mis- with, with our mistakes. And because God's love is unconditional, the way we live life changes from trying to prove ourselves, justify that we are valuable and that we matter, and it changes to being able to rest in the assurance that we are valued. We're able to live out of the gratitude for what God has already done that can never be taken from us. So let me suggest that this totally changes our perspective when bad things happen to us, when life disappoints. So think about some of the disappointments that we face. Maybe it's work-related. We lose our job or our career has hit a dead end. Maybe it's a relationship that's really important to us that is broken or painful or has fallen apart. Maybe we're afflicted with an illness. If we have like a common religious mindset, and by religious mindset, I mean, you know, if we think that, well, if we just try hard enough, we can earn God's love by our performance. If we're just good enough, God will be pleased with us and make our lives good. If we have a religious mindset like that, that won't help us at all. Because if we're thinking and engaging in life in that way, when bad things happen, we wonder, what do we do to make God turn our back on us? What do we do to make God angry with us? And we wrestle with our guilt and our shame And I want to be honest, we can be followers of Jesus and call ourselves Christians, and we can have this religious mindset if our hearts are not open and absorbing the fullness of what Jesus did for us on the cross when he said, it is finished. But maybe we don't have a religious mindset, but maybe we have a secular mindset, kind of like everyone around us in Silicon Valley. And... In a secular mindset, when life disappoints, we feel like life is unfair, like we've been wronged, we got the short end of the stick, and now we're angry and bitter and cynical, or perhaps we just grit our teeth and feel like, now I just got to try even harder to prove that I am worthy and valuable, that I'm significant, that I matter, that I have the life that I desperately need to have in order to feel good about myself. And as we pursue life in that way, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Oh, that person's life is going really well. I wish I had a life like that. Oh, and that person, their life is going terribly. I'm so glad I don't have a life like that. And when we live life that way, we are under loads of oppression. And it's actually the avenue for tremendous pain and suffering that we introduce into the lives of others because we're always wondering who we need to climb on top of to feel better about ourselves. And we're always feeling the oppression of comparison to people whose lives seem like they're going better. But if we understand Jesus' words, it is finished. We face disappointment and suffering from a totally different perspective. We know that we are loved. We know that you know, God's salvation that he offers isn't one that exempts us from disappointment and tragedy. We're not exempted from the pain of this world. But we know that his love and his salvation are with us no matter what we face. Even 
when we confront death itself, that God's love is sufficient to carry us through and to embrace us on the other side. And so when bad things happen to us, we don't have to wonder if somehow it means that God doesn't love us anymore. We don't have to feel like life is unfair because we're prevented from achieving what we need to achieve in order for our lives to matter. Instead, when we face disappointment and tragedy, we can have our eyes open to see where is the opportunity to be a light in a dark place. Where is the opportunity to join with God to be an agent of healing and reconciliation in this world? Because if God brought salvation and redemption and healing from the greatest tragedy in human history where the Son of God was rejected and crucified, then it means that God can work in the mess of our lives and he can bring his redemption and salvation and healing in us and through us to the lives of others. And he can be faithful to his word that he will work all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose because we can live life with the knowledge that it is finished. Jesus has finished it. He's finished the work of salvation. He's finished the work of revealing the heart of God. And so now we're living a life of gratitude to let that healing and redemption be fully expressed in this world. The very last thing that I want to highlight. When Jesus says it is finished, it frees us from our fear of shame. Virtually all scholars, when studying how the Romans crucified prisoners, and when they study the gospel narratives, they believe that Jesus died naked on the cross. For a Jewish man in the Jewish culture, the combination of public judgment, complete exposure, the utter rejection by his own people, would have been the most shaming experience that could be possibly imagined. Shame is one of the most powerful emotions that we face in our lives. We're often unable to experience unconditional love because our own sense of guilt and shame that keeps us locked up in hiding, that makes us feel like we want to hide from God and hide from other people, not let people know what's really going on inside of us. But as we reflect on Jesus on the cross, the Savior of the world stripped naked and in utter shame, we have an opportunity to be freed from our fear of shame. Hebrews 12, 1-2 reads, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus scorned the shame of the cross, it means that he didn't allow the shame of the cross to prevent him from fulfilling the mission that God had for him. And he didn't allow it to prevent him from entering into the joy that God had promised. What about us? We know ourselves and the things we hide, our addictions, our compulsions, our sins, how we've harmed other people or let them down. These are the things that give rise to the feeling of shame inside of us. They give rise to the questions that poison our soul. 
What would other people think if they knew? How would other people judge us if they found out how we really are? It's not safe, is it, to let them see? But if we fix our eyes on Jesus and see his unconditional love for us, then we can scorn our own fear of shame and ensure that just like Jesus, shame does not prevent us from entering into the fullness of life and the healing and the forgiveness and the joy that God intends for us to have. In the safety of this place, where we proclaim Jesus is Lord and we are saved not by what we've done, but by what he has done for us all, shame loses its power. There's no condemnation or shame from the things that typically keep us isolated or feeling like outcasts. No shame from mental illness. No shame from substance abuse. No shame from sexual compulsion or addiction. There's no shame even in the guilt of sin itself. Because all of us here are broken and imperfect and in need of the grace and mercy of God. So in the safety of this place and also outside of these walls in the safety of our relationship with God and in the safety of those that we trust to have God's heart. We can be fully honest with God. We can acknowledge our feelings of shame and brokenness and pain and addiction. We can acknowledge where we've caused harm or violated or abused others. And in those areas, we can and we should repent. But where we are able to take shame off the table, we're able to repent and to experience the forgiveness that God provides. In all these things, we don't need to hide. And as we honestly acknowledge our feelings of shame, as we own our brokenness and our woundedness or our guilt, as we repent and confess our desperate need for God, we can be confident that we will be fully embraced, utterly accepted, because Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. My love for you is sure. It will never fail you. I have done everything that needs to be done to forgive you and heal you and save you into a relationship with my Father. It is finished. God has paid the ultimate price and expressed, paid an unimaginable cost to be able to save us and bring us into relationship with him. It is finished. Jesus has revealed the full heart of the Father that is love so that we can know him. And it is finished like the experience of Johnny Erickson Tata that the splashes of heaven that are present in our lives, Jesus' presence with us in the midst of disappointment and pain can become streams of living water that fill us up and flow into the lives of those around us. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata started uh, a worldwide ministry, Johnny and Friends, that has ministered to countless numbers of people and families struggling with disability. Uh, It's an organization that we partner with in the context of our special needs ministry. And we can, because of what Jesus has done, out of gratitude, 
we can walk along with him. And it's not easy because the rest of this world is constantly telling us it's not finished. You have to work harder. You have to be better. You have to be someone different than who you are to finish the work and make your life significant. But it's not true. And the source of joy and intimacy with God is being able to live out and to reflect the finished work that Jesus has done. And we are imperfect. We're going to be working on that as we live. So what I want to invite you to do is in the message response area of your connection card to simply write a prayer because we're all in process on this. And the prayer that I want to invite you to write is help my life reflect the finished work of Jesus. Help my life, God, reflect the finished work of Jesus. Amen.